Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Erica Weisbrod is the Director of Security Solutions in the Americas at International SOS. She previously served as a civilian intelligence analyst for the U.S. government in various roles in the U.S. and overseas. Corey Vitello, or Dr. Vitello, is the former head of corporate security and global security operations at Stripe and was previously senior director for global security and safety at Visa. And I had the good fortune of working with Corey at OSAC where he was Senior Major Events Coordinator. Eric Antons is the former VP and Chief Security Officer at Hyatt Hotels Corporation, during which time he was also a member of the OSAC Council. Previously, Eric was a Manager of International Security and Executive Services at Sempra Energy and a Diplomatic Security Special Agent at the U.S. Department of State. In this next installation of our Insight podcast series, we are taking another look at lessons for how security and intelligence leaders can continue to position themselves, their teams, and their organizations to successfully navigate challenges in this COVID era. To start, I'd like to go ahead and ask a question that takes a bit of a step back for some broader perspective. So we'll begin first with you, Erica, but the same question to everyone. What's one thing that has surprised you either positively or negatively, about how companies have handled their response to COVID thus far. Thank you, Greg, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for including me to kind of kick this off with a really good question on how kind of reflecting on the not so distant past. I think what surprised me in a positive way, and it's not always been ideal, is that virtual crisis management is possible. We've really seen how organizations have adapted quickly using technology to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and to coordinate with stakeholders, their crisis management teams, using their security and risk management stakeholders, and also to work with the broader workforce to manage this scenario that really didn't have a playbook. A lot of the organizations that had good business continuity plans in place, we're able to leverage those. And so I think, again, a positive that some of that business continuity planning could be activated. But really what we're seeing is this virtual crisis management. And we've worked with organizations before to do crisis management exercises, simulation exercises. We always encourage that participants are in the room to do these exercises. And while in-person is always preferred, even doing an exercise that's virtual might be a more realistic scenario given how the workforce has moved very predominantly to uh, a remote setting. So I think that's been a positive that we've been very adaptive and flexible and still able to manage a very challenging scenario to keep our workforce healthy and safe no matter where they are. Plus on the technology side, I know that it always isn't easy. There are challenges and it's not you know, as productive or as beneficial to working face-to-face, but I think the virtual adaptation has been a really big success. Wonderful, thank you. Corey, if you might be able to share some of your thoughts as well. 
Thanks, Greg. And, and thanks, everyone. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. And I think this is a very interesting conversation to have. And you start off with a very good question. And I really like what Erica just brought up. Crisis management over Zoom is the new way of life. And it actually can work, which is pretty impressive to see how technology has become such a stable and, and what we do from a corporate security crisis management and business continuity perspective. But I think one of the things that really surprised me in a positive way, when I look at companies that I've been affiliated with, is how they embraced the work from home philosophy. And not just because it was a way to keep momentum going in a capitalist society, but because they wanted to be good world citizens. They wanted to be good global citizens. They wanted to keep their employees off public transportation, trying to keep them out of cars and off highways so that medical staff can get to where they need to be and first responders can get to work. Um, I've heard it over and over again from leadership that I've worked with that maybe our global footprint isn't so large, but every little thing that we can do to help the first responders get to where they need to be and then also help curtail and flatten the curve on COVID, we should be doing. And I just think that that's a lot of technology companies get a bad rap. But I saw this very, very clearly while I was working at Stripe, is that the leadership there was very interested in making sure that we did the right thing, good corporate global citizens. So for that, I think it's wonderful. And I think maybe something that surprised me in a less than positive way is perhaps a lot of companies could have closed a little bit earlier. I think we did a good job monitoring the situation and seeing what was happening. And we were watching China, we were watching Singapore, we were watching Asia very closely. But maybe when we started to see the area in Europe around Milan, that should have been maybe a flashpoint that should have inspired us to maybe close a little bit quicker. But other than that, the way it's been handled without a playbook, like Erica said, it's just been pretty astounding. Excellent. Thank you. And now, Eric, you'd also like to maybe share some of your thoughts. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks, Greg. You know, it's often said that there's no greater catalyst for change than a tragedy, and this is certainly a tragedy. It is the blackest of black swans. Some would say it's a two-headed black swan, something that I don't think any of us really could have predicted, even those of us who do this full-time for a living. So I could probably sit here and say it was kind of eye-opening to see how many companies out there did not have business continuity plans. But I think those of us who have been in the business long enough knew that. We always knew that we were somewhat vulnerable, even if we were constantly working with our organizations to establish not just emergency management for 72 hours, but business continuity, long-term programs and, and plans in place. So that wasn't really a, a strange thing to me. I, I'd say two things. I think, number one, we saw how fragile certain markets are, certain sectors of the economy are. Things like hospitality, the airlines. You think about what you do personally with your family in terms of you know, keeping a budget and living within your means and saving up that rainy day fund. We oftentimes just assume that our companies are doing the same things when in fact certain industries were extremely vulnerable to what occurred and certain industries may not even come back. The second thing that kind of surprised me overall was at least looking through the lens of a, the United States, just how compliant certain businesses were throughout this. When you consider just how much has changed in terms of governmental guidance alone, if you're in a business which is dependent upon retail traffic, 
uh, retail stores, bars, restaurants, hotels. Your very livelihood is dependent upon people coming in through your doors, butts and seats. And I was pleasantly surprised just how compliant certain businesses were. Now, I think a lot of this was driven by the liability of not complying. If lawsuits were to develop, well, they could always come back and invite the companies because they opened too early or they chose not to even close. But those are the only two areas that have really surprised me. And Greg, if I can just add to that, um, to what Eric was saying, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely been amazing to see the resiliency. A lot of the smaller businesses, just like um, Eric was saying, the, the mom and pop shops or the smaller restaurants where they've moved to the online marketplace from brick and mortar to online and actually were able to stay in business. And not in the same business model that they're used to, but I think it's going to change and open up new revenue streams for them going uh, going forward. And I think it's just incredible to see that resiliency. Excellent. Thank you uh, all. Um, I'd like to maybe see if I can combine a couple points um, made both by you, Corey, and and Eric, because I I think they may uh, be somewhat interrelated or, or at least complementary if we, if we can try and dive into them. Um, Corey, you talked about being uh, a bit surprised about how some companies took a while to close and that, um, amongst other things, you know, uh, certainly in retrospect, uh, you know, indicators such as Milan um, should have been a, a clearer flashpoint. And Eric, your comments about um, the level of surprise that uh, some companies really didn't have what turned out to be effective business continuity programs. And then that, that seems to be kind of two sides of the, the intelligence and response uh, kind of cycle or, or coin. Um, you know, if any of you want to maybe take a stab at, are there some reasons why some people missed out or were unable to respond um, with sufficient kind of, you know, flexibility or dexterity um, to indicators, you know, things like Milan, um, or, you know, why some people maybe didn't have uh, the the type of robust business continuity programs maybe that they thought they did? Well, Greg, I will say that to answer this question, you really have to think about the information that was out there. While we're watching the virus spread throughout Asia, and we're getting missed messages perhaps at home from our own uh, health officials and government officials that it's not going to wind up here on our doorstep. We, were, we weren't sure whether or not the testing was being done at a rate that was providing accurate information. We weren't sure whether people actually had COVID in in many cases, or if it was just the regular seasonal flu. And then you just layer on the misinformation and and the disinformation that was coming out because COVID became not just a world health crisis, it became a political football. And as intelligence analysts, we need to be able to divine fact from fiction. We need to be able to be the unbiased ones in the room and look at all the information that's available and come up with recommendations and scenarios to help us plan for what might have, for a lot of people, seemed to be inevitable in spite of all the rhetoric that was coming out of, and I can only speak for for here in the U.S., out of our own administration. So it's really difficult to make predictions 
based off the information in the early days, because the information was so scattered, the testing was not as good as it should have been or could have been. And we just really didn't know. And we were playing a wait and seek game and trying to do our very best that we possibly could and make those recommendations the best we could. And of course, we're in a global economy that we're trying to make money. And so we never wanted to put anyone's lives at risk. And so I, my hat's off to the companies that uh, were more conservative and were quicker to shut down offices and move to work from home if they were well prepared to do so. Many companies were, and they were able to do it much quicker. Some of the other companies, I think Eric referred to this industry, whether it's hospitality or or event management or the hotel industries, they just were not quite ready. They didn't have their plans for something like this. And you know what? None of us were. But those who were more adaptable, more nimble, weren't able to do a better job reading the tea leaves with what little information that was available, little trusted, credible information that was available. Actually, you'll find when they write the story about COVID in 2020, you'll see those companies going to look like they've done a much better job than some others. I think on that point, I, th- I think it's a really good point in terms of what, you know, the planning and the monitoring for what was going on globally. But what we've also seen is a lot of business continuity plans really didn't have a pandemic component built into them, leveraging a medical input, looking at public health, even having a medical resource to be able to identify some of the triggers to monitor when we're watching what's happening globally. So suddenly our security teams, our intelligence teams are being asked to be a bit of armchair epidemiologists in really taking on like this expertise of understanding what do these triggers actually mean as far as their own exposure as a business in terms of the health implications. And so I think one of the challenges of this crisis has been security really stepping into the role of having medical awareness and and knowledge or being able to reach out and leverage the appropriate stakeholders. Some organizations have medical resources internally, but really trying to solve this problem without some of the technical expertise of what a pandemic looks like, what a spread looks like, what are the triggers to monitor from an intelligence standpoint. And the only other thing I would add, Greg, is because this is a global issue, we had kind of a sneak preview of what was coming, didn't we? I mean, it started off in Asia and then migrated across to Europe and then it migrated to the United States. So Asia is still about one month ahead of us, kind of on the curve of this thing. So if you're part of a global organization, you certainly had been monitoring it all that time. So you you had an opportunity to prepare for it to learn from your counterparts in Asia Pacific, and then learn from your counterparts in Europe. And even if you aren't a global organization, it's a great argument for just maintaining global perspective because we have a lot to learn. And it might go the other way from Southern Hemisphere to Northern Hemisphere in the fall. We just don't know. So I would say that's one point. Number two is this is a great argument for one of the other options we have for risk management, you know, we often associate options for risk management as being, you know, we can accept it as it currently stands. We can avoid it altogether. We can manage it, which is what we do for a living by emplacing controls. 
we can share the risk. The idea being that we buy a bunch of insurance and place it on the back of an insurance underwriter. But those of us who have actually been through a loss event know you can never place all of that risk on an underwriter. So at best, we are sharing it. But the other option we oftentimes overlook is exploiting it. That is to say, we are so comfortable operating in this environment. We have enough controls in place. We understand it well enough that we can actually use this to our advantage in the marketplace. And I hope this opens some people's eyes to that option because all too often we look at risk as a negative. And this is one opportunity where it could actually be viewed as a positive. I think that's an outstanding point. So maybe let's go ahead and pull the thread on that a little bit further. I'd, I'd combine that with, you know, previously in the conversation, you know, identifying the qualities of, you know, companies that were particularly adaptable and nimble. And I think it's probably you know, likely to see that, that those companies are going to be maybe the type of DNA built into the company as a whole or the kind of culture that has been cultivated by their security and, and risk leadership to put them in those positions may put them in the best position to be ones who can take advantage of or exploit for benefit that risk. As I say, you know, risk also has that opportunity component. All of you are very prominent individuals in your corners of the field and well-networked. So I don't know if you might carry uh, you know, some thoughts or examples, either from organizations that you are or recently have been a part of, or also companies that you know through your, your peers and, and networks across the field. What are some of these qualities that might make a security organization or a company particularly adaptable or nimble and put them in a better position to be able to move forward into Q3 and Q4 this year, maybe even more so Q1 and Q2 in 2021, and be particularly successful as organizations and companies? Well, I think one of the biggest things is understanding your risk environment. And, you know, a lot of larger corporations, of course, understand it. You know, they have risk councils. They've gone through all the steps. They followed the elements of ISO 31000 and the ASIS ANSI risk management standards. For smaller companies, though, perhaps they haven't. And you don't necessarily need an in-house risk management department or a chief security officer. More and more, we're seeing fractional to Erica's point, we're seeing fractional options out there or consultants that can take on several clients at once. And the steps are really very straightforward. I mean, you have to first have to establish the context of the risk, given your product, given your company, where you are around the world. And then you have to identify those risks. You have to perform a risk analysis, and then you have to evaluate that. And then you have to go ahead and placing risk treatment strategies. And then you have to continuously improve and reevaluate this. And this is one of the important parts of having a, a risk council, which is made up of everybody who really owns the risk. That might be your chief information security officer, chief security officer, risk management who handles insurance most of the time, emergency management, business continuity, finance. It all comes together as this one collective group that is constantly educating themselves on what risks are facing the company and what is the current state of that risk in which they operate. So I just think it's really helped us to realize just how important those elements are in our companies. 
I think that from a corporate security perspective, and again, I'm thinking along the lines of a corporate security team that has an intelligence component, companies that have these teams, I think they're well-placed to really influence policy, influence decision-making. If they're empowered, I think, by their leadership to try to become an expert outside of just the normal routine risk, I guess, components that were familiar to all of us from crime, geopolitical, and those types of things. When something like this occurs, we need our security professionals to try as quickly as they can to get up to speed on what are the markers, what are the triggers, what are the things that the company is going to be interested in. And it's not just security. There's people teams or human resources teams that are dealing with folks working from home in a small apartment in San Francisco with perhaps roommate issues. How can we help provide a solution for folks by offering up new policies that allow maybe uh, employees to live in a corporate apartment for the time being? What are we doing when facilities team has to get important vendors to a building that we've closed down? Has security researched ways in which we can open up a building safely so that folks could get in and not contaminate an entire building? There's just things that we need to start getting out of our comfort zone and start researching and becoming somewhat an expert at, even if we're not, but we have to be able to contribute to the policies going forward. And I always think, think back to the time when Japan had the earthquake and a tsunami and a potential nuclear disaster back in the early 2000s. This was a case where intelligence analysts became very familiar with radiation parts per million in the atmosphere and were worried about a radiation cloud coming over to Tokyo. If you can't adapt, you're going to be left behind and other folks within the business are going to fill that void. And so I think companies want to rely on security, want to rely on the intelligence team because they understand that we're really, really in tune with how to do this analysis. But if we don't get out there and do it, we're not being very helpful. And the company is either going to adapt on their own and leave us behind, or we're just going to become atrophied. So if I could offer any advice to any intelligence analysts out there is do everything you possibly can to learn about what is going on. Again, divine fact conviction. Be that voice of unbiased reason at the table and empower decision makers to make policy decisions based on your analysis, not based on what they're hearing in the media. I would say to follow on what Corey was saying, I think it's really important to ensure, you know, for that versatility and that flexibility, that to break down some of the silos that exist within different business units and for the different business units to really know what the other ones do and be more collaborative. And we're seeing this a lot with the different phases of return to operations and the return to travel that where we're seeing a lot of success is where the different stakeholder groups are coming together and planning these committees of how they're looking at these issues. And they are bringing HR in, they're bringing the communications team, because how are they communicating this out to employees, especially if it's a more remote workforce than usual? It's security, working with medical, working with risk management. And the more aware each of these stakeholder groups are 
of what the other one is doing, the more cohesive the response will be. And I think we've also unfortunately seen with various stages of furloughs and layoffs, some of these departments may go away temporarily, hopefully not permanently, but is there then that resilience to be able to continue and pick the ball up and run with it to be able to have an insight into, you know, if if your travel team is not there, do you know what travel looks like within your organization? And can you at least help to pave the way for what the next steps will be to get travel back on track? And, you know, ultimately the travel team may come back and your stakeholder groups will grow. But this is going to be a time also where due to economic challenges, different stakeholders may be slimmed down. You may not have as many people on your team to work with. And so being able to be flexible and, as Corey said, can take on new challenges or learn new information to be versatile will be very important. I think that's something that I'd actually like to pick up on and talk about with a kind of a specific focus here. You had just mentioned it there, Erica, you know, what travel will look like. I know a lot of people are really grappling with this question right now. So if we can allow ourselves to kind of look at what a post-COVID environment or, you know, or an interim normal, we know we're going to be expecting a tough adjustment phase for travel and event security. So in probably this next entire year or so, how can security and intelligence leaders prepare for, or ideally even help shape, how their organizations are going to manage travel and event security into 2021 and beyond? I can take that first, Greg. I just came out of the industry. I might be able to offer some fairly recent info. There are really three main markets for travel. There is leisure travel, which is probably the least constrained by by business policies, corporate policies and such, because it's you you and I deciding what we want to do with our families, perhaps. Then there's business travel, which is conducted, obviously, on behalf of the business. And then there's meetings and events. So those are really the three main types. We're starting to see green shoots pop up in Asia Pacific for leisure travel, and even some places in the United States, Las Vegas is a good example of that, where folks are willing to take the risk on their own. They've done internal risk assessments, whether formally or informally, and decided, yeah, it's it's worth it to drive a little ways to do something a little bit different. We found that in Asia, people were traveling shorter distances and staying shorter times, but we saw a short return to that about six weeks ago, actually, and it is growing. So that's right now. Business travel, we're probably not going to see much of a return of that until we have a vaccine and it's widely available, largely because, number one, there are still travel restrictions in place internationally. You physically cannot travel from one country to another in some areas. Number two, there's limited lift. So the airlines aren't even up and running just yet. And number three, a lot of companies don't have the money to send people on the road. It just doesn't, you know, the economies have not come back sufficiently to justify it. And then lastly, probably the last market which will recover will be meetings and events, largely because of just number one, they're very expensive and all the other things I just mentioned, the lift, the restrictions, and the liability associated with getting a lot of people into one room. A lot of analysts were saying that meetings and events probably won't return to 2019 levels until probably Q2, Q3, 2022. So it will be a long road 
before we see a full recovery there. The return to travel, while it may have a delayed start and may not look like many organizations are going to start resuming business travel even until 2021 or when there is a vaccine, but I think what we're seeing now is it's still really important to start putting in place that return to travel planning and to understand what is being monitored. What are the triggers that might be able to allow travel to resume? Defining what is essential travel versus non-essential travel and prioritizing, you know, if we're not going to go from zero travel to back to where we were a year ago today, it's going to be a gradual transition. And so organizations are going to have to look at it on a destination by destination basis. I think first we'll see the resumption of domestic business travel, then moving to international. But assessments are really going to need to be conducted to understand what is the outbound risk, what is the inbound risk, what are some of the travel restrictions that are in place. You know, it's not just the restrictions of the destination, but is it also based on the nationality or the point of origin of the individual traveler? And so everything is going to be looked at really on a case-by-case basis for the travel that does start to take place. And with that, as an organization, business travel also really need to put in approval processes to understand what needs to be accomplished before they send one of their employees on a business trip. So that destination assessment, preparing the traveler, ensuring that there are resources to support the traveler if they get sick or if despite relaxed restrictions, there may be a second wave and newly imposed restrictions that could create challenges with returning or the need to quarantine or stranded in a country because of border closures. So what does that response look like? What are the actions that a traveler needs to take during travel? And then what does an organization do to support a traveler when they return? So developing a framework for how travel, you know, what needs to be put in place for the first few trips that really start to get off the ground is important. And having that plan in place for when travel gradually starts to resume is an important exercise that we're starting to see more and more companies go through this now that some of the return to operations have taken place. I think both my colleagues, Eric and Erica, have just articulated here are are spot on. I don't really have much more to add to that because I think understanding what for your company and your culture, what is essential means is really, that's it. That's the crux of it all. I mean, can you have the meeting virtually and accomplish the same goals and objective? Then if that's the case, and I think we're finding that most companies feel that that's where we are today. I really can't see much business travel happening for a good long period of time. And I think 2022, early 2022 might be when we start seeing normal levels start to return. And again, that's all reliant upon technology. And as long as technology is holding and as long as the people are adapting to this, this new environment where virtual meetings are the norm, there's not going to be an awful lot of momentum to try to get back out on the road. It's costly. It's expensive. There is liability. And again, just the hotels aren't open and they're not necessarily the safest place for for folks to go if they're afraid. The airlines just aren't, uh, the the itineraries just aren't there. 
So there's really no motivation for companies to start sending people on the road. And technology has sort of been there to really be the enabler of keeping people at home and keeping the spread of this virus down a little bit. Excellent. Thank you. In the sake of time, I'd like to wrap up similar to how we started, you know, with asking the same question to each of you. And this time, you know, we'll go in reverse order, make things a little bit fair. So, Eric, you'll be first on the spot for this. You know, let's say all three of you are brought back to rejoin this conversation at the OSAC annual briefing in November of 2021. What is something that you either expect or you hope to be able to say? about how business, about how corporate security has really done well in responding to and adapting to this crisis as it has unfolded? You know, I think for a lot of us, all too often we're seen as the no people, you know, that's the difference between the varsity and the JV in our industry. The folks who know what they're doing know how to manage risk. Those who don't simply circle the wagons and say no. So I think for most of us, you know, we are going to be relied upon in the future to always provide options. We are business enablers. That is the reason we exist. We add value by allowing our companies, our organizations to engage in risk without really being exposed to it. That is the value proposition we bring to the table. And many of us, I know, have for years been screaming and kicking and gnashing of teeth, trying to get our organizations to listen to us about the need for preparing, not only emergency management, again, that's the first 72 hours. Those plans are built upon the premise of restoring basic operations within about 72 hours. It's the long-term, it's the business continuity. It is how do we survive long-term beyond 72 hours three, six, nine months, maybe even upwards of a year. And one of those options is not to survive, but we at least need to identify that option. So that is one of the big value propositions I think we bring. I'm always reminded of a quote I pulled from Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late. And it's more about geopolitics than anything else. But the quote was, the more we see, the more we understand. And the more we understand, the better decisions we make. I think that's intelligence in a nutshell. You know, we need to know what's out there first and foremost. And to Corey's background and Erica, to some extent, that is their background largely in intelligence. Intelligence is important at every level of this. It is the outer ring of security. We talk about concentric rings of security or defense in depth. Well, that outermost ring is virtual. It's intelligence. So again, getting back to my earlier point about having a global perspective, working with companies like Sibyline and others to understand just how everything interplays, because we saw it at every level with COVID-19. And as a result, it was probably, as I said, one of the the blackest of black swans that has come around in, in recent history. Could we have predicted it like it unfolded? I don't think so. Could we have had plans in place to mitigate some of the losses? Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. Corey, some thoughts you would be willing to share? Sure, Greg. I think that a year from now, when we look back, we're going to see folks in corporate security and intelligence have adapted. They've seen that there are new risks out there that they haven't had to deal with in the past. And with a globally dispersed work from home workforce, the risks are now virtually everywhere. 
it's not enough, I think, to just geofence where our offices are or where our events are taking place. We literally have workers working, can be anywhere. And so as we're seeing with a lot of the protests or even worse, the riots that are happening, we have to be aware of where our people are, where our assets are at all times. They're not necessarily going to be linked within close proximity of our offices anymore. So I think as intelligence analysts, we're going to do a better job of really getting some inroads into knowing where our assets are, working closely with our human resources departments, our facilities departments, because it makes a whole lot of sense because we are going to always be the, the first line of defense. I think that first concentric ring that Eric brought up to really ensure that our people have the duty of care that we are mandated to provide them and we're morally obligated to provide our staff. And then I think we're also going to find that intelligence analysts are going to be able to be helpful in home office security. Again, I see a great number of the workforce is never going to go back to an office. And that's going to have a lot of impacts, a ton of impacts. So when people are working from home, there are cyber concerns, there's document destruction concerns, privacy concerns. How are we adapting as an industry to provide policy amendments or new ways of thinking about protecting the company's brand and confidential PI and PAN and all of these types of things when people are working from home and it becomes the new normal? And then the last bit, I think, and again, this is going to come down the horizon or over the horizon. This is when we get back to event security. Events will start happening again. I have no doubt about that. When they arise and when we start protecting these things, it's going to be less about securing the events and more about the medical piece. And I would imagine Erica would have some really good insight into this, but I know in all of my experience working at Super Bowls or the Olympics or, or World Cups, we always had more medical issues than we've ever had security-related events. I think we're going to have an awful lot of concern and need for people who are going to understand pandemics, have good pandemic plans related to every event, that, whether it's something as large as FIFA or something as medium or impactful as a board meeting or a shareholder meeting. But medical is going to be a gap that intelligence analysts are really going to have to get in there and fill and really help from a pandemic perspective. Thank you. And Erica, a final word from you. Yeah, well, I would really agree with all of the points that Eric and Corey made. I think if we fast forward a year from now, I think what we're really looking at is a protracted crisis. That's why the flexibility, the versatility is so important. And with that, the need is really going to be for resilience. So the organizations that will succeed are those that are resilient over a long period of time. So it's great if you're successful in putting out an immediate fire, but how can you really weather the landscape that we're going to be facing? And as this is drawn out, we're going to be seeing additional risks overlaid with the COVID pandemic. So what does it look like for an organization to weather a hurricane in light of the pandemic? We've already seen, you know, what does it look like when there's instances of unrest in many urban areas? And we're likely to see continued unrest. So how are we overlaying this kind of longer term risk with how we're planning and approaching 
other aspects of risk. So that planning piece uh, is going to be really important in being able to not just be reactive to the changes. It is important to be up to date and to be monitoring on a regular basis to know how the landscape is evolving, but then also to be able to actually handle multiple instances at once and to be able to know, you know, what are the triggers for other types of risk so that we're prepared to be able to not be taken out by a secondary instance in light of the coronavirus. So I think that aspect, and Corey mentioned, you know, what does it look like for your workforce? It's also that support to your new exposure, your footprint, which is likely to be very different than just focusing on a headquarters office building when your workforce is going to be more spread out. And how can you support your remote workforce? How can you account for them and know how to provide duty of care when they're not under one roof? So I think we'll see, you know, the success is going to be the long game in how we approach this. We've already been tested, we're adapting, and I think I'm excited to see kind of where we are a year from now. Hopefully there will be a vaccine, hopefully we'll be back to travel, but I think there'll be a lot of success stories about how people were creative and adaptive, and whether it's with their security solutions or how they pivoted their business to be able to survive. That's fantastic. And I'm delighted with a positive and optimistic view and what we're hoping to look forward to. I'd like to thank all of you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation, exactly as I would expect from a group of really magnificent people who I'm fortunate enough to call both friends and and professional colleagues now for many years. So again, on behalf of myself, on behalf of Sibeline and, and all of our listeners out there, I thank all of you so much for what has been a really terrific and very informative conversation. My honor, Greg. Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much. Terrific. Thank you, guys.